Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and this is the podcast that we talk about all of the things that affect therapists, the way that we go about our lives, the way that we go about our businesses, and Today, we are joined by Katie May. She was one of our Thought Bubble speakers at Therapy Reimagined 2019, and she is here to talk today. I don't think we've ever addressed anything about doing group therapy, and if we have, it has only been like very, very minor parts of some episodes in the past. So talking about developing groups, giving people some some ideas around running groups, Thank you so much for joining us today, Katie. Yeah, I'm really psyched to be here. I'm surprised groups hasn't been a bigger topic, but it's what I love talking about. So really great to be here. We are so excited to have you. And I'm so excited again to outnumber Kurt with a number of Katie's on the episode. So thank you. Best name ever. And you spell it properly. So that's all good. Obviously. So, <laughs> if you're a therapist named Kurt, we desperately need you to come on to the show. I don't care what we talk about, but we got to start balancing these scales out here a little bit. I know we've had so many episodes with Katies or Kates or Kates and Katies, and and it's you know there we go. Anyway, so what we always start with is who are you and what are you putting out into the world? Yeah, so I am Katie K. May. I am a therapist. I specialize in working with teams and have a group practice of 12 other therapists. And the foundation of our practice is in running groups. That's how I built my business. And so I also teach other therapists to market, fill, and run groups in private practice. So we have moved this question up earlier in our episodes as really kind of a a learning point. So we're, we're not here to shame anybody as far as the answers to these questions goes. But traditionally, we have always asked at some point during the episode, what do therapists get wrong about and whatever that day's topic is. So in kind of a, a learning opportunity for our listeners and not necessarily having to make some of the same mistakes, what do therapists typically get wrong about groups? I have a few answers to that, as I do with most things. I would say in terms of filling groups, what therapists get wrong is waiting too long. So the typical thing that I see happen is that they will have a few people interested and have them like on a waiting list or waiting until they get more people, let's say like six, seven, eight people interested in what they think is starting a full group. And by the time they've gotten the second half of the people, the first half have lost the urgency or the motivation or the intention to join a group. And so they find themselves in this place of always trying to start a group 
with ever being able to actually start it and get it off the ground because of the fear of what happens if only two or people show up or start in the group right from the start. From my perspective, it's like a fear of what what will we say? Will we be able to fulfill the hour? What does it say about me? Or where will there be judgment that I wasn't able to get the group full? And from my experience, getting started with three, four people and growing from there, building with the momentum is actually a really great way to start group. It's a really powerful way to get your, your core group members that start at the very beginning and are still in group three, four years later. And and feel really invested in the process because they feel a sense of having co-created it with you along the way as it's grown. So I guess that's my first answer is what they get wrong is waiting too long to start when they have a handful of a small handful of people to, to get started with right away. And I find that a lot of therapists are really hesitant to refer their clients to group if it's not started yet, because there is that that kind of ongoing, there's not a whole lot of clarity that there's going to be a real group that ever happens. And so if you can get started with three people, you know, especially if they're super invested in the urgency is there, I think that's such, such an important thing, such an important thing, especially if it's an ongoing group, if it's a closed group, that's a little bit harder, but like an ongoing group where people can kind of flow in and out, you have to get started as soon as you have three people. Exactly. And I think a lot of that is in the language that therapists use around it. Like I'm screening for a group to start soon, or I'm enrolling or thinking about starting this group. And so they never actually gain their own decisiveness around, I have a group for this, send your client, let's do an intake and get this started. And then from my perspective, if I have two people that call with a concern around the same issue and they want a group for it, I'm going to start that group because I know if two people are calling, there's more people out there that need this group. And so I always use that feedback as my data to build from in terms of what groups we're offering at any given time. And I think part of this too comes in, at least early in our careers, and I'll always point to where I see faults in our therapist education, but there's the one book that everybody gets taught group <laughs> therapy from. And everybody has somewhere, you know, in their home or their office, the Irv Yellum book that was written a million years ago. And I, I think somewhere in there, it suggests like you need eight people for a group. So that way, if only five show up, you've still actually got a group. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and I knew this was going to be a question because it's always a question like, what book should I read about group therapy? And to be honest, I haven't looked at or cracked that Yalom book since grad school. And I run groups all the time. So. I don't even think Yalom's <laughs> cracked that book since grad school. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been at speeches with him where he's like, yeah, most of you probably know me from the group therapy book. I haven't run a group in 20 some years. Listen, he has that claim to fame. It's like, <laughs> but I think there are so many different ways, so many different resources and so many different ways to look at running a group. I actually like to be eclectic in my research and my reading on groups. So I'm a DBT trained therapist. I run DBT groups, but I also run process groups and activity groups. And so I love to look at what's the structure, what's the research behind, you know, mindfulness-based stress reduction groups, what's the research behind activity-based groups. And I bring all these different resources together to find something that feels aligned for me and my clients. Oftentimes I see on social media or in other places that therapists are asking, like, what's the best curriculum to use for groups? And the answer is always like, what's the best thing for your clients? What's the evidence-based yeah. group for the client population you serve? Like, what are they experiencing and what would be helpful for them? So I don't think there's one book that addresses that. I think it's knowing your clients, knowing your niche, and then 
looking at the resources that support research behind that population. Yeah, I know when I've done groups, it's been helpful to have some sort of a curriculum as a backstop. But I think I love what you're saying about being really responsive to the people in the group. And in truth, if you've got a group that has a specific need or a specific, you know, client type, taking and adapting some sort of, you know, curriculum structure, you can create your own curriculum as you go that really taps into the unique needs of the clients in the group, but also just the population. And so I think it's, it's very empowering to hear that you're eclectic with that. Cause I know for myself, like when I was doing a group, I would pull from art interventions. I would pull from music interventions. I would pull from, you know, a lot of different things. And, and, you know, I'm a systems gal. So it's like, you just put that into a folder and you've, you know, you've got your weekly curriculum by the time that you finish up a, you know, a 10 week you know, course of the, of the group. <laughs> exactly. And I think it, it so organically unfolds as you let the group unfold. And so knowing those stages of, you know, the group forming and the norms that they form together, and then them really being able to interject their own needs and experiences and struggles in the process. Some of it is just trusting yourself as a human and trusting your basic counseling skills of how can I hear this? How can I create this tapestry of empathy and validation and sometimes problem solving if that's what's needed in terms of this group container that we have. And it's, it's trusting yourself and not being fearful that you won't know what to do if you have your Mm -hmm. basic counseling skills. And you two both are, you know, group pros. And (laughs) for a lot of our listeners, I want to maybe speak to those fears a little bit more because Mm -hmm. for those people who haven't started groups, you know, walking back to kind of that very early part of starting your first group, well, now I've got to come up with all of this curriculum. And now there's that fear of that imposter syndrome of, well, I can fool one client, but if you get a group of them, then they're all going to team up against me sort of mentalities. Speaking to some of those early fears that, you know, you're talking about trust in yourself and getting something going what should therapists do to to bridge that anxiety from I've got an idea or I want to put these two clients together to be able to work on something and getting those those wheels in motion? Are you saying in terms of getting them in the room and getting that group full or what do I do once get, they're there? Getting getting over yourself to actually get the get going. You know, because so the mindset to start a group. Is that the what you're mi- saying? The right? mindset to start a group because to listen to the two of you, this is you know, oh, it's just easy. Like, you know, you put a couple of clients in the room, you have a couple of handouts in case they don't start talking and everything just kind of just flows. But Kurt wants to know how he can get the, the courage to start a group. <laughs> okay, I have the answer to that. So and here's what I think. With almost anything that I do with clients individually or in group, it always links back to their goals and the reason that they're seeking support. And so when I'm conceptualizing a group and then thinking about what clients are a good fit for that group, because I always start with my current clients before I even market, you know, outside of that in the community. It's what clients do I have or do I know would benefit from this group? It's a conversation. It's, hey, Kurt, you and I have been talking about how you really want to be more comfortable socially. You really want to feel more confident in yourself. 
You want to know how to start conversations. These are all things I actually see in you, Kurt. You need to work on these things. But <laughs> so, no, but if you're talking to a client, you're, you're, you're reminding them, here, here, here are the goals that you have. And we've been doing great work together on this individually. And actually, I have this other way that we can enhance our work together that's going to help you practice what we've been talking about in our sessions in a real-time way. It's going to allow me to observe how you're actually doing these things so that when we're working individually, I can give you specific feedback to improve on these things. And we can really work together more comprehensively because I know that these are your ultimate life goals and I want to help you get there faster, better, with more accountability than just the two of us working one-on-one in this, in this setting once a week. Does that make sense? So that's where I'd start with a client. I mean, does that feel... I don't know, like it would be effective with, with clients individually from your perspective. Yes. I I mean, as far as there's that implementation and I think, you know, to speak to the imposter syndrome that a lot of therapists feel, especially if they're going to be developing or launching something new to their practice, that there's, Mm -hmm. there's the salesmanship to the clients that, you know, you're describing as far as within their clinical goals. There's also just kind of that, it's a new area of a business to start and develop. It's a new part of the practice to develop. It's uh, coming up with a more structured curriculum because, you know, clients social loaf sometimes and they don't, you know, just come in and want to just blurt all of their past traumas out to a group of strangers that they've never met before. And so there's also just kind of that therapist shift that has a different clinical skill set of being a group therapist as opposed to just an individual therapist too. Yeah. And I can say that seven years into this, every single group that I start, the first group, I convince myself no one is going to show up and it's going to completely fail. And then most of them, (laughs) if not all of them show up. So I guess I don't know that that ever goes away. I think we just kind of partner with it in a different way as we move through our career. And my first group always looks pretty similar unless it's a structured, unless it's like a DBT group where there is a certain structure that I follow. My first group of my process groups are always, you know, introduction, some kind of icebreaker, group agreements. Here are the things that I see as important for us to feel safe as a group. What else would you add to that? And then I collect information. Usually I'll do this on index cards before the end of that first group. What's the biggest thing that you'd like to get out of this group? What do you want to learn? What do you need support with? And they don't know each other yet. And so often I do do it by like collecting index cards or or something like that. And that helps me guide if I'm doing any kind of psychoed or if I'm doing any kind of structured activities, I let them tell me from the start what's important to them. And then I don't have to make it up in my head. I can just kind of research those areas or use my own, you know, worksheets or skills or activities around those areas so that I'm, I'm designing a group based on the group members I have in the room. Thrizer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thrizer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thrizer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thrizer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thrizer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thrizer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. 
Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I really like that. I, I know one of the things that I added in my most recent iteration of a group, and I've not done a group for a while, was being able to actually spend the whole group. And I, I like doing 90 minute groups just because I feel like there's more time to, to kind of dig into things. And I did the values exercise because I, my thought process was the group agreements and the, the way that we approach confidentiality and respect and all the, you know, kind of the safety elements of being in a group really come from people's values. And so it was, you know, a values exercise and talking through what is, what are the values that we want to have show up in this group and how do you want to have that? And I think that may be the difference between doing, you know, adult women who are very, you know, intellectualized versus teens, right? Yes. Um, (laughs) But it's something where even kind of having some, some structure to the initial meetings that allow for even even more of a surface kind of conversation that brings himself into the room, I think can be very helpful for that process, especially if you actively are trying to get them to talk to each other. And I think that's the thing that I think, especially we're marriage and family therapists. Are you are you a counselor? I'm LPC. Yeah. LPC. Yeah. So for for us, we're theoretically trained in family therapy. And there's a lot in in group therapy that I think speaks to that same family therapy where you you start with them trying to encourage them to talk to each other. You start really trying to help them open up in ways that feel safe in the room. And I think with therapists, a lot of us have at least some training in, in family therapy or couples therapy or even in teaching. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of the skills that we have outside of the one-to-one therapy that we can bring into group therapy that we just have to be aware that that's what we're doing versus, okay, I've got to start a group and now there's going to be these individuals looking at me and what do I do about that? It's kind of like, well, how do I, how do I get people to talk to each other? How do I train people to talk to each other? Let's, that's kind of the beginning process is actually be, is getting that going. I think one of the mistakes, and this is in the Yalom book, but one of the, the mistakes that often happens is that kind of spoken wheel where people are all just only talking to the therapist. And so it becomes this thing where what I, what I did with my values exercise to, to kind of close out that loop, what I do is have each of the members in, you know, interview the rest of the group on that value and choosing one member for each of the questions that we put together on. So like, for example, respect. And so what are the questions that we should do to really interrogate the, uh, the value of respect? And so we get the same number of questions as there are group members. And then I pass them out and each group member interviews the rest of the group and takes notes. And so it starts this kind of this cohesive being able to talk to each other that I think can be really powerful, especially in process groups. I love that idea, one of the values, and pulling that out of your group members right from the start. I agree with you that for some of my teens, I'd have to teach them what a value is before I could pull (laughs) the values out of them. But yeah, this idea of shared activities that they work on together is something that I see a lot of value in as well. I do different activities, but with a similar intention behind them. One of them is that all of the teens have to make a picture together. I don't tell them what it is. And each of them can only use one color. I and so at the end, oh, yes. Awesome. 
So we're looking at it together and I'm saying like, okay, you know, Jenny, there's a ton of purple on this page. Like you're very active in this. And we can talk about what that looks like socially for Jenny versus Johnny, who only has a little tiny corner over here. Is he usually kind of a wallflower? Like we talk about some of their roles socially and how that interacts in the group. Oh, it's beautiful. The other one I do similar to that is I have a puzzle in a Ziploc bag and they don't know what the picture of the puzzle is and I dump it out on the floor and I say, you got to work together and figure it out. How do you put it together and what is this picture? And so that forces them to talk and to problem solve and interact. And we can similarly look at what are some of the social roles that you're bringing into the group and then how can we, you know, widen this so that we can all support, validate each other, even when some of you feel more vulnerable or nervous to do that. Talk about kind of the interplay there because part of what seems to be super necessary is that screening process too for a lot of group members and making sure that, you know, those sound like wonderful interventions as long as somebody in the group isn't just going to be like horrible to everybody else and easily screened out at the beginning. And I have seen some people start some groups in the past with, okay, I just need like one or two more people and kind of relax their screening standards a little bit and then regretting it later. Yep. What is a good, give us some good advice on a good screening process. I think it's important right from the, right from the start to have your inclusion and exclusion criteria. For me, it's important that everyone who's in group wants to be in group. Again, I work with teens, so no forced teens by their parents. Everyone has to verbally and willingly commit to group no physical or verbal aggression, nobody that right from the start is exhibiting any kind of hate speech or really rigid ideas about what makes people good or bad in a way that could be inflammatory in the group because that can become very dangerous. They're not ready for a group yet. But again, I think it it depends on your population. An example is we, we wanted to run a social anxiety group, but the therapist who was running it wasn't using like a, a structured social anxiety group curriculum or anything. It was more art-based. And she literally had like three or four groups where nobody spoke and it kind of fell apart. And so I think when you're putting a group together, it's also important to think about what are the personalities that mesh well together. You don't want eight passive people and no one that's willing to be that first person to talk, but you don't want five really interactive people with one super passive person who's always going to, who I guess their, their real world problems are going to be replicated within that group setting and reinforce some of those self-concepts that are unhelpful for them. So you want to, again, think about how does this support their treatment goals? How do I match people in a group together so that it's going to be sustainable, but also it's people are going to enhance each other. And I think another thing to add to that is their level of emotional regulation. I know with DBT groups, there's no psychosis, right? Like I think that's, that's one element of it. But I, in my group with women survivors of childhood sexual trauma and abuse, I oftentimes would have folks that were very dysregulated a lot. And so it would be looking at, you know, and, and if they didn't have their own individual therapy or they weren't actively working on kind of emotional regulation and that kind of stuff, they would take a lot of time from the group. And so for me, I would really look at what, were, what are their support systems and their resources and do, you know, in person when we were doing that, um, screenings to really get a sense of the, the energy in the room and seeing how that might impact the group, as well as, you know, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, that kind of stuff. Because any of the risk factors that are going to be really heavy in the group, I want to at least be aware of it, but also, you know, 
potentially if someone's, you know, really dysregulated or really, you know, kind of dissociating frequently or suicidal, that kind of stuff, you know, if they don't have the appropriate support, I, I don't bring them into group. I have to kind of make sure that they're appropriate to be able to, to kind of hang in the group and not dominate the group. 100%. And we have similar ideas around, you can be in a teen talk group, which is one of our process and mm-hmm. activity groups. If you've had self-harm, suicidal ideation, or hospitalization in the past two months, then you need to be in a DBT group and really get the skills before yeah. you can step down to that level. Perfect. Um, and I would also really strongly encourage in-person intake or individual intake if it can't be in-person. Yeah, but if you're doing online. <laughs> yes, individual <laughs> intake before bringing someone into the group. And we always frame that first group as a mutual trial. We're observing you to see if this is the right setting for you. You're deciding, is this the right setting for me? Because I've, again, one of the mistakes that I've learned going through this is I've had people come into group and they've really been not a good fit but then almost feel indignant. Like, what do you mean? You said that I could be in this group. This was the Mm. the group for me. And so you Mm -hmm. set yourself up for some of these conflicts that don't need to happen. If you can say like, first group is a trial, let's make sure it's a good fit. Otherwise we'll slide you over to this group or refer you out to this group. But you know, we're not locked in before we, you know, some people can present so differently individually, and then you put them in a setting with their peers and they're a whole different person and you don't want to set yourself up for that. That's a really good point. I think I've had that happen myself and I hadn't thought to kind of explicitly say it before the first group. (laughs) We've been kind of dancing around this, but as a therapist who's been running groups as part of your practice for quite a while, how did you handle the transition over the stay-at-home orders during the first initial wave of the the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, Groups seem to be this thing that we're talking about, like in person. A lot of therapists struggled in moving individual clients over to telehealth. Tell us about your magic. Can I just <laughs> answer that as like lots of crying and then end it there? Is that <laughs> <laughs> no? We I laugh actually... at your pain. <laughs> Um, what I actually did was because again, I have a 12 person team and all of us run groups. And so there was actually some crying in that first week and a lot of overwhelm. And so I made the decision that we were going to cancel groups for a week because I had to get my, myself in order, get my team trained in running groups online. Well, we had always done some intermittent, like online individual sessions. The groups had never been online before. And so got my systems in order, got our, you know, programming in order and all of that. And after that, I would say we lost three clients total out of all of our groups to the transition to telehealth. And then one of them returned after a week. Um, So overall, what I found is that the more isolated our, our clients were, the more they were struggling with daily routine, that actually having this group as a tether to connection and normalcy and routine was really helpful for them. Again, when we came, we we took that week off, we came back online with all of our groups. That first week was just about adjusting to how do we be together online versus be together in person? How do we find private spaces where people aren't walking in and out of the room behind you? How do you feel comfortable sharing when you're worried that your parent is in the room next door? So there were some of those logistical issues to process. But now things are kind of running smoothly. Honestly, 
I love my in-person groups and I will go back to having them, but we plan on continuing with at least one online DBT group to support people statewide because we have people coming in now that don't have access to that kind of group where they are geographically. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So getting a little bit into the logistics of this, because I know a lot of therapists have struggled to identify platforms and different ways to do this structurally. Like what platforms do you know that are, are being able to support groups at this point for telehealth? The two main ones that I believe are still active and haven't shut their doors out of their own, probably overwhelm and lots of crying, are Zoom Healthcare and Google Meet through G Suite. And both of them are HIPAA compliant, will sign a BAA. And all of our clients seem to be familiar with Zoom. Either parents are using it for their own work or they have it for their school. If they have online learning, they're using it that way. It's worked really well for us. I love the ability to screen share and show videos, screen share and have people collectively color. We can do polls for like, how are you feeling today? And just different elements that make it work really well for us. That's awesome. I just, I think about like all of the creativity that you can do when having a a virtual platform. And I, I just want to honor something that you said that, that I really loved because I think a lot of people didn't consciously do this, but that you, you just canceled everything for a week so that you could get up and running and really introduce it well the next week. And that's just great because I think so many people felt like they had to immediately turn around and, and do something that they weren't ready to do. And I think that may have, negatively impacted their ability to serve their clients and may have turned some of their clients off to the telehealth experience because their therapists were so panicked and didn't know what they were doing. So great idea. (laughs) Even if you were crying that week. (laughs) Well, and I know not everybody was happy about it. Some parents felt like we should have been able to step up to it sooner so that their, their teens had that consistent support, but I just felt like moving forward before all of my team felt comfortable delivering groups in the online format and having the opportunity to practice and feeling prepared would have been a disservice to everyone involved in the process. Oh, and especially from the DBT world of getting back into your own wise mind and being able to model that for your clients. And I'm, I'm assuming being quite open about the intentions behind that and utilizing that as part of the teaching curriculum, whether intentional or not, that then gives kind of the okay to clients to follow the same path. That's more of a yeah. DBT comment than a, than a group <laughs> comment. But, uh, no, but, but it, totally it also, but it also speaks to therapists are part of the group too. Yeah, totally. And it's completely appropriate, the DBT comment, but we talked about, you know, radical acceptance. Here's where we are right now. And also we need to figure this out. We want to be able to do this well for you. So we're going to take a break and we'll come back full force next week. And there still might be some fumbles and some tech issues, but we want to be able to competently give you this care. And we're not able to do that this week. So it's okay. 
if someone were considering starting a group right now, and I know a lot of people are feeling really called to do groups for healthcare workers or, or people who are in isolation. I mean, I've seen a lot of people starting, whether it's support groups or, or therapy groups for people who are uniquely impacted by the stay-at-home orders that we're experiencing. So whatever we're experiencing as this comes out, people still oftentimes will, will have that inspiration. I want to do a group. It's a way to provide access because people can, can have therapy at a lower price point. It's a way to, to have, you know, in my mind, a very different experience because my, my group therapy clients would always call each other out on stuff that as a therapist, I would not call them out on yet for like another two months. You know, like it's, <laughs> yes. it's like the, the, the experience is so rich in group and there's so much that can be offered. So long way around to the question is if someone is considering group right now, right this minute, as they're listening to this episode, what would you recommend that they start with? How do you recommend that they, they start moving forward in that way? I love that question. First thing I would recommend is get really clear on what that group is, who it's for, what kinds of things someone would be experiencing when they're ready to join that group. And what are the intended outcomes? Even if it's a process group, like how would you put into words what someone's able to get out of joining the group? And once you're clear on what that group is, it's then thinking about what clients do I already have who would benefit from this kind of group? I typically recommend don't start a group that's like radically outside of the work that you're already doing in your office because you're working against yourself. Not that you can never do that, but if, if you're trying to fill that first group and you're trying to build some momentum, start where you are, start with the clients that you have. Typically, all of our groups fill with 20% base of our own clients before we market it outward in the community. So I guess that would be my first two points is get really clear on the group and then get your first few member conversations going. Hey, I'm thinking about offering this group. Here's what it's about. Here's who it's for. Here's how it would help you reach your goals. Is this something you would be interested in? And start having these kinds of conversations. If you have some kind of email list, which I do, I don't know if all therapists do, but sending something out like, um, we're going to be putting this together if you're interested, you know, connect with us this way. And so it's really about assessing that initial interest and starting to build that group organically. When... People are getting into this mindset of, of starting groups. Is there a particular need for getting extra group therapy training that people should consider going through? I know things like DBT have the the structured group that's there, but if for people who aren't DBT oriented or don't want to run DBT groups, you have recommendations of things that they should maybe consider, maybe things that they shouldn't necessarily have to do that might be kind of the general wisdom? I have maybe an unpopular answer to this to someone who's like a highly trained group therapist, because aside from grad school, I've never had any formal group therapy training, except for my LPC supervisor who taught group process classes at a, at a school as well. So for me, it was really throwing myself into the process and getting really good supervision as I went through that process. And so I think it would probably depend on the person. I'm very much a learn as I go. And I'm not good at not being great at things. Like I will keep going until <laughs> I feel them. That wasn't meant to be like an egotistical thing. I don't feel good unless I'm putting my all into everything yeah. and making sure I'm doing my best in it. So I will always keep going and keep learning until I feel like I really got this down. So that's the way my process works. 
I know there are some great people like Stephanie Dobbin has a course on leading process groups for therapists. That's great. I know there's like a, a national, I can't think of the word right now, like a group therapy credentialing agency that does something like that. So I know there are resources out there, but I haven't utilized many of them. I've just done my own process. I was giggling because I love that you're like, I don't, I don't like being bad at, however you said, like, I, I can't be not great at something. And I was like, oh, I so relate because it's like, it's something where if I start something, you, you know, like it's, it's powerful when you can, you know, start something that you know little about and like continue to gain yeah. the skills and grow. And I think with group therapy, I also have not taken those courses, but have, you know, been mentored and that kind of stuff. But I, to me, it seems like there is such a learn while doing because the number of variables are so high. If you end up having an eight person group or a six person group, like each iteration of that is so different. Even if you have some of the same members, you know, iteration to iteration, like there's just so much that really requires that hands-on experience. And so I definitely recommend for folks who feel like they can facilitate a group in some way that they can, they can facilitate a conversation among a group of people that maybe they dive in and get some supervision on it. Cause it's, it's such a powerful medium of therapy. I agree. You can't prepare for everything before you start. So just dive in. Yes. Yeah. What do you have going on that you can be a resource for some of the therapists who might be considering doing groups? One of the things that I love to do is support therapists in getting that first group running. And so I run a six-week workshop. It's called the Fill Your Group Fast Workshop. And it's all about getting that really clear on that first group and using organic and paid social media marketing strategies, as well as tapping into your local network to fill that first group so you can get it up and running. My intention is within the six weeks of our program, you're doing along with us and getting your group up with support and coaching throughout the process. And where can people find that? <laughs> oh, great question. Um, so becomeagroupguru.com. If you go to my website, you can get, there's free resources and trainings on marketing and filling groups. And there's also a link to my Facebook group where we have over 5,000 therapists who are all working on filling, running, marketing, designing groups uh, online, in person, all over the place. A lot of great support in there and a lot of free resources and group activities. And we will include links to all of that in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Renoy and Katie May. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.